So good to, good to have you here this morning. If, if you're new here this morning, we want to welcome you. We want to give you a really special welcome. We're grateful that you're here this morning, that you've come to, and chose to, to worship with us. And, and again, if you are looking for a church home, we really hope you might find one here. But uh, if, if for some reason you don't feel led to, to, uh, to, to join this church family, we just want to encourage you that there are a number of great fellowships right here in, in Sheridan, uh, to uh, the, just great churches great folks, great congregations, great pastors, and it would be our heart that you would find a place uh, to, to belong, not, not just to show up on Sundays, but to truly begin to participate in the church life of either this fellowship or another one here in town. It's important. It's important that we as Christians begin to really involve ourselves with church life and involve ourselves with our communities. So this morning... If you want to open your Bible or turn your Bible on or grab a Bible out of the chair in front of you, um, we are going to be in Matthew, Mark, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And this morning, um, we are going to go all the way through verse 34. I knew that. So this morning, we're calling it Got Questions, and we all have questions. We have a lot of questions for God, as a matter of fact. If you're like me, you've got maybe a whole list of questions and things that, that you want to ask God, and there's nothing wrong, certainly, with asking God questions. There's nothing wrong with us having questions, but sometimes it's a matter of motive, and today, we're going to look at some questions that were asked to God and, and, and by some different folks and, and how, in particular, those things might have been asked. And so, starting in verse 13, we're going to read through the text, and then we'll, we'll, we'll make our way back through it, and we'll kind of look at things and break some things down. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise... And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. 
And one of the scribes came up and heard, him disputing with one, heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. <clears throat> so, Jesus is approached, and he's approached basically by four groups of folks. Pharisees, right? And the, and, and the Pharisees are a group of people that believe that that they are bringing kind of to the people the idea and the concept of priestly purity. And, and, and they're very religious in their approach to things. They're very much into the tenets and the keeping and the ceremonies of their religion. They do believe in the resurrection. Um, <clears throat> the Sadducees, who is one of the groups that comes, do not believe in the resurrection. They are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. And if you don't believe in the resurrection... I think you would be sad, right? So they're sad, you see, so it's easy, yeah. <clears throat> easy way to remember who didn't believe in the resurrection. It was the Sadducees. There's a scribe, and then there are Herodians as well. So, so the first thing that comes is that these questions are not honest questions. These questions are actually, um, they're, they're meant to trip Jesus up. They're, they're meant to capture him in a trap. And the very first trap that is set is a political and spiritual trap. You have the Pharisees that are there waiting for him to trip up uh, religiously in his answer, and you have the Herodians there who are waiting for him to politically make a mistake here. And so they come with this question that they've obviously crafted up for a long time, right? Do we pay taxes or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So now the Herodians, a little background on them, they're Hellenistic Jews, or they're very secular. The, when, when the Greeks came and Alexander the Great conquered all of known, the known world, they basically brought Hellenism with them, was, was the idea to create Greek culture everywhere, that there would be just one culture everywhere and that that would be Greek culture. And so, um, <coughs> so the Hellenists <coughs> were very much kind of secular Jews, um, they were very much into political power and, and, and a political perspective on life. Um, they were very materialistic, and they, be, they believed that the Herods, in particular the one who was in power at this time, Herod Antipas, would bring blessing to the Jewish people through the Romans. And so the first thing that Jesus does is they, they come before him, right, and they ask him this question, is it lawful to, to, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And then says this, but Jesus knowing their hypocrisy, their hypocrisy. 
Now, now sometimes we get, a, a, Christians, we get a really bad rap about being hypocrites, right? People say all the time, right? They say, why don't you come to church? What do they say? Bunch of hypocrites. I always just tell them, hey, there's room for one more. I mean, <clears throat> there's lots of room. There's empty seats in here. We, we've got room. The, the reality of our lives is, is that, you know, when we get right down to it, of course, all of us are, 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 have been hypocritical about certain things. But, but I think that sometimes it's a, it's a really misunderstood word. Um, a hypocrite is, is, is a hypo. It's under. And then a crit is a mask. It's a person who is under a mask or hiding behind a mask. So when these guys come to ask Jesus these questions, they're not coming seeking an honest answer. They're hiding behind a face. They're hiding behind a mask with a, with a predetermined kind of agenda of what's going to happen is that they want to trap him in this question. And so a hypocrite isn't this. A hypocrite isn't somebody who's trying to follow Jesus who trips up, who messes up, who, who goes against something and, 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 you know, man, they fall and they sin. That's a human being, Okay. That, that's, that's just a person. A hypocrite is somebody who never really intends to follow. It, it's a person who's just hiding behind a mask with no intention to truly follow. It's a person who's kind of saying all of the things, <clears throat> but not doing or walking in any of it or having the intention of walking in it. So the first thing Jesus does is he says, you know, basically recognizes their hypocrisy. And he says, why are you putting me to the test? And he says, bring me a denarius. Now, the Romans had several taxes on the people. There was, um, there was a 10% tax on your property and your land. There was a 20% tax that the Romans had on, on any fruit or grains that were harvested that you might have had. And then everybody who was alive had to pay a denarius just for being alive. You, you had to pay the Roman government one denarius a year, which was about a day's wages. So Jesus gives them this answer. He says, bring me a denarius. The, the, the value of your life, in a sense, that the Roman government is putting on you right now. And he, and he says, bring me that denarius. And he says, whose inscription, whose image is on this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So you guys aren't going to like the, question, the answer to this. Are we supposed to pay taxes? Yeah, You're supposed to pay taxes, right? We should pay taxes. We should be honest in our taxes, right? We're, we're hopeful that we have a, 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 you know, a government that would spend our taxes in a, in a, in a, in a good way. But, but on our end, yes, we're supposed to participate in the community that we live in. We're, we're supposed to be a part of this, right? We need roads. We need schools. We need libraries. We need parks. We need good things. And, and so there's, there's a necessity for, for people to, to participate in that and pay in that. And so, so, so Jesus says, look, yeah. And he's reminding us, I think it's David Guzik in his commentary, he's talking about that. He's reminding us here that we're, we're citizens of two different places. We're citizens here, none of the community that we're in, but we're also citizens of a, of a greater kingdom and a greater thing. And so he says, render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And, and I think that the really important thing here to remember is that it's, it, it's Caesar's image that is on, the, on this denarius. It's God's image that is stamped on you and I, that, that we are in his image. And so therefore, the life that we lead is meant to be above all of this, that, that we're meant to live for the purposes of his kingdom and what he has, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, 
And then it says that he will add everything that we need all in its right places underneath that. That our job is simple. Our job is to seek his kingdom and his righteousness in the things that we do. So then here comes kind of this this angst that I think Christians are in today and that the church is in today, it's the idea of politics and religion, right? The, the two forbidden things that we're not supposed to talk about, right? Well, I'm going to hold that we need to talk about them. We just need to learn how to have civil conversation around them, right? But, but here's the challenge. I, I, I think that the challenge and one of the struggles that we're in as the church today is, is that we've, we've we're having more political conversations than we are conversations about Jesus. And, and that's, that's backwards. There, there will be no political savior, okay? That's just the thing. Now, now and, and, and we'll talk about that. Our politics important is, is incredibly important. And it's important how we approach this and that we do participate in all of this. What do we need? We need Christian people to step up and to take leadership positions within our government. We need that to happen. And we need Christians to get out, and we, you need to vote biblically. You, you need to go and you need to vote according to God and according to God's word and what God says. And so, to be honest with you, there, there are issues that are out there that for me, and I hope for you, are, are just, they're, they're where the buck stops. An issue on life, if you don't fundamentally stand for life, I don't know where you go from there. And I don't know how you could trust a government that fundamentally does not stand for nor defend life. But when we get down to it, we've got to ask ourselves, are we having more political conversations? Or are we having spiritual conversations? See, one of the big fears, I think, is that what we really want as Christians is that we just want to see um, Christian principles out there. That we want to live in, and we certainly want to live in a world that has Christian principles, trust me. You do not want to go back and, and undo all of this and live in a world apart from Christian principles and the benefit that that has brought us in Western society. But Christian principles are not going to change the world out there. External things are not going to change the world or the people out there. Jesus is going to change the world and the people out there. You see, politics is not the first line of defense. It's the last line of defense. As a matter of fact, the politics and the people that we are putting into office is a reflection of where the culture sits and the society sits. It's a reflection of our ideology, of our worldview, and all of those kinds of things. And so as the church, we're called to go out and to make disciples. We're called to go and disciple the world. And that's what's going to change the world. That, that's, the, that's the recipe that God has, has given the church to change the world. Again, um, are politics important? They're super important. And I, I want to read something to you from, Jer, uh, from Jeremiah. And this is just before, and I think I've read this, but I'm going to read it again. And this is just before the Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, right? We all know that one. But it says this, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God's people are in exile. They've been taken into Babylon. And this is God's instructions for them in the midst of the place of Babylon in which they're existing. Just like you and I are exiles in this world that we're living in. And he says this to them. Build houses live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage 
that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So is it important? Yes, it's important. Incredibly important for us to participate in the political world around us. It's important for us to participate, but it's also so important that we remember that we are citizens of another kingdom and that the prescription that God has given us is not a political prescription. It's a discipleship description. And, and I was playing with my calculator today, and it was interesting. If, if 100 of us made a disciple who then went on to make a disciple, who went on to make a disciple. One of us, 100 of us made one disciple that went, off, went on to make a disciple that went on to make a disciple. In 20 years, 20 years, it would be 50,500,000 disciples out there. In 30 years, it'll blow your, it'll blow your, uh, your calculator up. 50 billion. 50 billion. Now, and that's just, it's just crazy, this idea, though, that, that, that this is God's recipe is multiplication, is that we would multiply what is inside of us, we would teach someone else how to do that as well, and that they would then go out and they would do that as well. This is, this is God's prescription to change the world that we live in. The problem with the church, I'll say it again, is that the world is discipling the church, the church is not discipling the world. We're being way too silent out there, we're not... We're not, we're not going out there with the conversation about transformation, about life change through Jesus and what he's done. So, moving on. So now the Sadducees show up, right? And, and it says right here that they don't believe in the resurrection and they ask him a question. So teacher, right? Uh, there's a man, he takes a wife, um, uh, his bro- his, uh, he dies, so his brother takes, takes her, and, and they don't have a child, but he dies, and, and it goes all the way through these seven brothers, and there's no children, and finally she dies. In the resurrection, whose bride will she be? Whose wife will she be? And, and it's kind of like they're like, okay, gotcha, gotcha, right? Because now how are you going to explain your resurrection? How are you going to explain the things about the resurrection? And, and, and it's kind of one of those questions um, the Sadducees right here now believe that they put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. That, that you, you, you really can't kind of talk your way out of this one now. You believe in the resurrection, but now we've shown you this thing, and, and now we've just disproven, we've just taken down the idea of resurrection through the teaching of Moses. Now, the, the Sadducees only really followed the first five books, the Pentateuch of uh, the Old Testament, the first five, they, they, they followed the teachings of Moses and, and they really didn't give as much credence to the rest of the, the, the Bible, the Old Testament. They were materialists. Of course you would be a materialist if you don't believe in the resurrection. You believe in your best life now, right? Because this is all you've got. <clears throat> so they're materialists. And, and it's interesting too because um, the Sadducees, were the ones that the Romans would put into the office of high priest and to serve in these positions. Why? Because they're materialists. And if you're a materialist, you're trying to have your best life now, trying to get along as best you can with the Roman government and all of those kinds of things. So Caiaphas, 
who's the high priest at this time, is the Sadducee. And they're talking about this idea of liberate marriage, this idea in the, in the Old Testament that, that when um, a man died and he didn't have a, a, a son to, to kind of propagate the family name, that his brother would have a child, a, a son, and, and, and then that name would continue on because it was always very important for the Jewish people that the name and the lineage and the genealogies continued on. So we see this all the time in our culture. We see people, that they'll, they'll do this, um, atheists or whatever, and, and they'll ask questions like this. They'll say, can God create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? Gotcha. Right? I mean, you ever heard that? Ever heard somebody say that? They're like, gotcha. Just took it all down right there. You know? Just took it all right down. And it's really... David Guzik says, hey, a dumb question's still a dumb question, even if you direct it to God. Just dumb. It's like saying, can God make a square a round square? Gotcha. He can't. And you're like, well, no, he can't, because if he made a square around, then it would be a circle. See, the, the, and, and what, they, what they're doing is that they're basically, um, they're, they're taking what's logically impossible, so therefore it's illogical, and they're saying, well, this disproves God's omnipotence. Because either way, he can't. He either can't create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift, or he can't lift it. Therefore, there's something he can't do. Therefore, he's, omnipotent. he's not omnipotent, and so therefore, we take it down. But see, that's, that's a bad understanding of omnipotence. Omnipotence isn't not being able to do something. Om- omnipotence isn't being able to do anything. As a matter of fact, in reality, there are things that God can't do. God can't cease to exist because he's eternal. God can't lie because he's morally perfect. And, and, and so to, to think that we can pose these kinds of questions and, and totally kind of take the whole thing down is just really foolishness. Matter of fact, thousand years, you know, Thomas Aquinas dealt with this and he said this, he said, Whatever implies contradiction does not come within the scope of divine omnipotence because it cannot have the aspect of possibility. All things are possible with God. Can God um, do all things? Does omnipotence do all things? No, omnipotence can do anything that power can do. But omnipotence cannot contradict itself. Jesus then gives these guys an answer, and this answer is from Moses' teaching. Now, Jesus could have went all kinds of places in the Old Testament and talked about resurrection, but he didn't. He he approached it from where they were at, and he um, he says this interesting thing. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. You've, you've, you've kind of hemmed yourself in on this thing to where you, you're not taking the whole counsel of God. And when we approach the scriptures, just a little reminder to all of us that we have to, re, we have to remember to always take the whole counsel of God. Anytime you start hyper-focusing in on verses, that's the place where cults begin. That's the place where out of that comes really bad theology. You have to take the whole counsel of God's word, and we have to look at this. So Jesus goes to, to, to Moses' teaching, 
And he tells them this. He says, look, in the, in the resurrection, they're not going to marry. They're going to be more like the angels. Um, but he says, as for you, for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What's the power? What is the power? The power of the resurrection, right? The power of the, res- is the, is the, power of God is the resurrection. It, it, it's, the, it's the thing that, that, that takes Christianity. It's the power. It's the engine for the whole thing. couple of verses, Mark 3, 6 reminds us that, that the Pharisees, they went out and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Mark 8, 15, he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's this quandary that they, they believe that they put Jesus on in and, and that he, so he answers them out of that. And, and remember this too, Jesus has also made all kinds of I am statements. And if you were a Jew in this time, you very much avoided even ever saying something like I am because you didn't want to get stoned for blasphemy by by considering yourself to be equal with the great I am. Remember, God defined himself to Moses as the great I am, the I am that I am. Not the I will be, not the I have been, but the I am, the ever-present, all-powerful God. Jesus says that, his I am statement, seven of them in the book of John, I am the bread of life. I'm your provision. I'm your sustenance. I am the light of the world. I am that which, which lightens the darkness, which brings light to it, which overcomes darkness. I am the door of the sheep. I, I, I'm the way. I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who cares for you. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the power of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. 2 Timothy 3.5 warns us about people that having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people. It's the power of the resurrection. It's the power of the resurrection that changes our perspective on life. It should. It should take us out of living materialistically and recognize that there's a greater purpose in this life. There's greater things to serve in this life. And if we just serve our comfort and our wants and our needs and our desires, then we'll miss the very purposes that God, the higher purposes that God has for us in this world and in this life. We can end up spending our life, we can end up being good people according to this world and completely miss what God has for us or what he would want from us. We have to get outside of ourselves. We have to recognize, and the only pathway to getting outside of ourselves is to knowing that I'm not the end game, that it's not about me, that it's about God, and it's about what he's calling us to. Job 25, 19 is, I love it, right? It's where Job makes the proclamation of resurrection, the oldest book of the Bible. And he basically He says that I know that my Redeemer lives and that one day he will stand upon the earth and and, and in my flesh, though, though yet my flesh decay, yet in my flesh I will see him and not another. 
It's this idea that, that one day, that even though my flesh is going to decay, the hope and the reality and the driver for all of what we do is this resurrection that one day God is going to come and he's going to write all the books. And he's going to set everything straight. And he's going to restore Eden and every desire of every person that we've ever wanted, which is to be living in a place apart from pain and brokenness and suffering and death and sickness and all of these things that we struggle with is going to be no more. And that we're going, to set, we're going to be set into this place, this idea of heaven that we so desperately desire. See, these guys are exactly like Pilate, who's standing in the very presence of truth, asking him what is truth. They're just like the Pharisees who were asking him, who gives you this authority as they stand in the very presence of authority? These guys try to trip Jesus up on a question about resurrection, standing before the resurrection and the life, but denying its power. So then we get another guy, right? We get this next guy, and he's a scribe. And the scribe actually listens to the questions. And because of the answers, he doesn't come with a predetermined question. He listens to the answers, and because of the answers that he hears, he comes with an honest question. And his honest question is, what's the greatest commandment? Now, a scribe Remember that, that a scribe is, um, he's a recorder. He, he's basically the scribes are recording the business of Israel, the things that are going on. They're the stenographers in the courtroom. They're, the, they're, 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 they're recording transactions and deals and contracts and all kinds of stuff. And this is their job. And for some scribes, the part of their job is to replicate the scrolls. And, and they took great care to replicate these scrolls. So they spent their day writing, right to left, you notice, Hebrew. They spend their day writing and copying these scrolls, and they took great pains to make sure they were accurate. As a matter of fact, when they would, would write and they would be copying in a scroll, they would get to a certain place, and then they would hand it over to another scribe who would count the letters. And if he got to that spot where he was supposed to be, the number had to be perfect. And if the number wasn't perfect, they didn't go back into the scroll and try to figure out where he had messed up and correct it. They threw it away, and he started over. And this is how the Jewish scribes were able to preserve God's word so accurately for so long. Of course, God's preserving it, but, but they took great pains to do their part in it. The other thing is that they had a deep reverence for God. And so in the morning, if a scribe was, was copying the scrolls, they would go and they would purify themselves first thing. And then after purifying themselves, they would come and they would begin to record those and, and they would have their quill and they would be doing it. When they got to certain words of God's name, sometimes they would write that name and then they would throw the quill away and then they would get another quill and they would keep writing. When they got to some of the names, other names, sometimes they would, before they wrote the name, they would throw the quill away, they would get a new quill, they would write the name of God, they would throw that quill away and then they would get a new one and keep writing. For when they got to the unspeakable name of God, the Yahweh kind of a thing, they would basically throw their quill away. They would go and they would ceremonially purify themselves. And they would come back and they would get a new quill and they would write that name, Yahweh. And then they would throw that quill away and they would go and bathe again. And then they would come back and continue writing. Imagine just the reverence of God and, and who he is. And so this scribe is, 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 is doing this kind of thing and he comes and he asks, he asks Jesus, what's, what's the most important thing? 
What's the thing I need to know the most about all of this? What's the greatest command that's out there? And Jesus tells him this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? I I love that. It's just right there. So there's a saying out there, it says this, it says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do what you want, okay? It's a good one, it's true. If you do the first part, if you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the very thing that you want to do is gonna be the very thing that's on the heart of God. This is called the Shema. It's the prayer that, 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 that the Jewish people would, would repeat in the mornings and in the evenings. And, and the word Shema itself means to hear. It means to hear. And so Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Now, now Jesus talks about this idea about let them, have, let them who have ears to hear, let them hear. We've talked about this, but we all have ears, but not all of us have ears to hear. You see, in the Hebrew language, there was no word for obey. Obeying was implicit with hearing. If you heard, you obeyed. So when we look into some of these things, Exodus 19, 5, now therefore, if you will indeed shema my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people for all the earth is mine. For Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, has the, Lord as great, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in shemaing the voice of the Lord? Behold, to shema is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so this has always been the case is that is that is to to hear is to obey and for us to obey is pleasing to God. Jesus said, "If you love me, you'll follow my commandments. If you love me, your life will reflect and you'll you'll do the things. Your life won't be a contradiction to your faith statement." Now we all know too that none of us are going to do it right. We're all going to screw up. We're all going to fall short. We're going to continue to need Jesus the whole of our walk. But our lives shouldn't be a contradiction to our faith statement. To hear is to obey, and to obey is greater than any work that we could ever perform. This is the problem, and the problem with the Pharisees was that they believed that their ability to fulfill their religious tenets justified them before God. Sometimes Christians think that going to church and reading your Bible in the morning justifies us before God. It does not. It's really not. We can, we can do those kinds of things with all the wrong motive. We, we, we can do all those kinds of things just to look good or just to bring our kids or whatever that looks like. But it's really a heart that is, that is desiring not just to hear but to follow. Jesus follows it up with saying that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Mike 6, 8, real quick. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, old man, old man, what is good, not old man, 
Oh, man. <laughs> Not just old men, everybody. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what God is calling us to. And then he tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. An interesting standard that he gives us. Love your neighbor like you love you. Take care of your neighbor like you take care of you. That would change things, wouldn't it? Because I usually make sure I'm okay. I know that. He goes on to tell this guy, he says, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom. Because you asked an honest question with, with the desire of a, of, a, of a right answer. See, this guy came and he said, you know what? He didn't try to smooth Jesus up like those other guys did. Oh, man, we know you're a teacher. We know you got it, man. We know you're all that, man. You teach without, with authority and you're the man. You teach right what's God. They were just trying to smooth him up to just try to get the answer that they wanted. Here he said, man, I've listened to your answer. I've listened to what you have to say, and I recognize you to be who you say you are. Will you tell me what's the greatest thing that I need to do? And Jesus finishes by telling him, you're not far from the kingdom. See, there's a principle out there, and it says that seek and you'll find. But, but that looks like an honest seeking. For years and years before I became a Christian, I would have told you I was a seeker, but I wasn't. I had a predetermined idea of how this thing ought to end and what things were acceptable, I did a lot of things where I was counseling God on what was right and what was wrong and, and all of those things. And at the end of the day, I had a predetermined idea of any question that I asked, what was acceptable and what was unacceptable within it. And that's not really being a seeker. The day my life changed was the day I said, God, I don't know who you are, but I want to follow you. And if you'll show me who you are, I'll listen. I'm ready to hear and, and, and literally, that's the, it, from that point on, it wasn't very much longer before I was in a church where I heard the gospel, and I came to know Jesus, and it changed my life. Seek and you'll find. An honest seeking question is always met with his grace, his love, and his good answers. So let's be that. Let's, let, let's, let's ask our questions, and let's remember that, that he is the one who is ready to just um, to give us good answers, that, that we need to be a people that, that, that seek the answers of life from him and from his word, not from the world. The world doesn't know. And then we need to be a people that, who when we understand those answers that we've gotten, we're a people who are quick to go out to tell others and to replicate what God has done inside of us into others. So if you've never been in a discipleship relationship, you should... You should be in one. And if you're a mature believer, you should have somebody that you're walking with, that you're helping them to sort through some of these questions and some of these things about, about God. See, because none of us are called to be an island to ourselves. This, this, is, this is a community effort. God's plan is always a community effort. It's not about lone wolves and, and, and just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it on my own. No, it's, a, it's about pairing up. It's about joining with others. It's about being part of something greater than ourselves. So, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for these questions. And we thank you that you're a God who's, who answers questions, that, that when we give honest questions, that you have honest answers for us, and that you're patient and you, you allow for that, that, that you, uh, you're, you're faithful, too, to, to lead us into your truth. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this day that, that you have a calling and a plan on every life that's in here. Lord, and we just, we just lift before you the, 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 the political 
mess that our nation is. And we ask forgiveness for you, from you as the church, Lord, for not, for not doing what you called us to do, that we didn't disciple the world in the way that we, that we should have, that we got caught up in being comfortable and doing our own thing and, and, and just kind of calling our own shots. And we, we really uh, we forgot about making disciples. And because of that, we're, we're where we're at. And so, Lord, we, we just want to be a people that, that apply what you've called us to do, that we really hear, that, that, that the hearing would be implicit with the obeying in our lives. And so, Lord, we just ask your forgiveness that we've, we've not obeyed. We've walked on our own. We've, we've, we've done our own thing. But, God, we're asking your restoration, and we know you to be restorative, and we know you to be the God of redemption. And so we're asking, Lord, that you would redeem your church, that you would redeem our communities, that you would redeem this nation and this world, Lord. Help us not to just chase after the principles of Christianity, but help us to chase after the Savior, the one who truly can make a difference. And Lord, we just uh, we pray that each one of us, I'm praying that each one of us in this place this day would walk in the works that you prepared in advance, that we might walk in them. So we give you praise and glory and honor because you're the one who's worthy to receive all of those things. Lord, that you are all truth. And so we look to you, Lord, and we're grateful for this day. And we look forward to the opportunities that you have for each of us this week, uh, opportunities to share the hope that's in you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.